Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I think about from the moment I was born, I wanted to be president of the United States. Everyone knew that's what I wanted to do. What made you decide that you wanted to go to law school? It seemed like a lot of people went to law school who became president of the United States. That's Anne Hill. She started at Yale Law School in the fall of 1968. So we jumped from a couple of women in the class before to 26 women in my class There weren't enough men because of the Vietnam War. At the beginning of her first semester, it seemed like all her plans might get derailed. I had missed my period, and I thought I might be pregnant. And this was not the way I wanted to start law school. Anne knew that this was not a good time to have a baby. So she found a local OBGYN, and she was honest with him. She said she didn't want to continue the pregnancy. And he said, oh, no, most women are so happy to hear that they're pregnant. And I said, well, I'm not, and I would like to terminate it. And he said, well, that's illegal in the state of Connecticut. The only exception to Connecticut's law was if an abortion was deemed necessary to save the life of the mother. And Anne's doctor wouldn't make that exception. I said, well, anything else? And he said, no, I can't think of anything else, but good luck. Now, she had to look for other options. You get on the phone because every woman and every man pretty much knows a a woman, even then, who had an abortion. One name that kept coming up was Nathan Rappaport. At one point, Rappaport had gone by Dr. X to maintain his anonymity. He'd performed thousands of illegal abortions and had spent nine years in prison but he remained unapologetic and outspoken. Here he is in 1969 at one of the first rallies for abortion rights. I am out to return the dignity to these women behind me and all of you who have been subjected to seeking an abortion. I think that it's about time that your dignity was returned to you. It didn't matter to Anne that Rappaport was famous. She chose him because his office was in New York City, the closest option for someone living in New Haven, Connecticut. Abortion wouldn't be legalized in New York for two more years. 
So when Anne drove to Manhattan with two of her friends, she wasn't sure what she was getting into. I was greeted by a very rough-edged guy at the apartment. Anne paid $500 up front, money she had to borrow from one of those friends. She then left them in the waiting room and walked back to the medical office. There was a chair with uh, stirrups. Dr. Rappaport was in a doctor's uniform, if you will, white, but the nurse, the other male, wasn't. I was put completely out, unconscious. When I woke up, I did not know how long the procedure had been. I had no idea if I had been there 10 minutes or 10 hours. I came to in that room eventually and didn't feel the pain immediately. And Dr. Rappaport at that point brought out these papers. Those papers had nothing to do with Anne's procedure. They were articles and documents about Rappaport's legal troubles. And he went over it like page by page with me as I was still coming to about how he had been unjustly punished. It was there, still in stirrups, that Anne learned that Rappaport had been arrested in connection to a woman's death. Another woman had died, and that stark reality hit me like a punch in the gut. He suddenly went from being in control as the doctor doing the abortion to the one pleading his case and asking me to represent him. Uh, I guess knowing that I was a law student, if there was anything I could do to get him a pardon or help him get his medical license back. Anne was still in her first semester of law school and still trying to process what had happened to her. And I just thought how fortunate I was not to have died in that stirrup chair. As soon as I got clear-headed enough, I just went running into the waiting room. And I just said, let's go, let's go, let's go. Her friends helped her get out of the apartment and drove her back to Connecticut. It wasn't a comfortable ride. I was bleeding a fair amount, more than you do when you menstruate. And I was in a lot of pain, and then I was really scared, too. Anne went back to the OBGYN, the doctor she'd seen when she first realized she was pregnant. I told him that I had terminated the pregnancy and that I was in bleeding and in a lot of pain. And he said, oh, well, now we could perform a DNC, which is just to clean out your uterus if there are any remnants left. I could arrange to do that. And I thought, well, gee, how big of you? You know, here I am, having nearly died getting an illegal abortion, and now you're telling me you can help me. Anne didn't end up needing another procedure. Her bleeding stopped on its own. But she could not get over what she'd been subjected to. I was just furious. I was furious that I had to risk my life for an illegal abortion. I was furious that I didn't have control over my own body. I was furious that a whole state, a whole country, would place women in jeopardy. It went immediately from personal to all other women, and I was bound and determined to change it. This is Slow Burn. I'm Susan Matthews. In the early 1970s, 
women all over the country were furious. Some of them channeled that rage into the fight to overturn the nation's abortion laws. Two cases brought by women attorneys, Doe v. Bolton and Roe v. Wade, were moving from Georgia and Texas to the Supreme Court. And the first-year law student, Ann Hill, she was about to start her own battle, one that would help transform America in ways she never imagined. What would it take to change the abortion laws in Connecticut? What forces were reformers up against? And how did this fight set the stage for the Supreme Court? I just was hot to trot to get into court and to get rid of these laws. This is episode three, Women versus Connecticut. The rest of this episode is available exclusively to Slate Plus subscribers. Subscribe now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Slow Burn show page on Apple Podcasts. Or visit slate.com slash slowburnplus to get access wherever you listen. By subscribing to Slate Plus, not only will you unlock the entire season of Slow Burn Roe v. Wade, but you'll also get full access to all your favorite Slate podcasts all ad-free.